0: Welcome to BFR Radio, a podcast dedicated to all things BFR. This podcast is proudly sponsored by sportsrehab.com.au, where if you want to buy your own BFR cuffs, or you want more information about the type of training, or you just want more information, this is your one place to go. And I'm your host, Chris Gavillio. Hi everyone, and welcome back to BFR Radio. A couple of episodes ago, I reviewed the role of BFR and the potential for rationale for improving bone reformation. I think this has a really great concept within the role of the elderly, people who are rehabbing or recovering from a bone stress reaction, and also in those endurance-based sports such as running and triathlons and so forth where in conjunction with their strength training, it may actually provide an additional benefit to their strength adaptation and their potential for decreasing stress reactions and so forth. Just going through that previous paper, that they proposed that the main mechanism behind a favorable bone response with the use of BFR could be through an increase in the intramedullary pressure and also interstitial fluid flow within the bone caused by the venous occlusion. As it highlighted, there was a few studies, more so animals, but a couple of human studies that actually highlighted that there was actual favorable pathway responses. And in some cases, they showed an increase in healing in animal studies where they were able to actually provide a control type situation. And that really gives great potential for use in human type activities. From this, I thought I'd then review a paper, which is a case review. Uh, It's called Rehabilitation of an Osteochondral Fracture Using BFR Restricted Exercise. Once again, by Jeremy Lonecky and this guy, as I said earlier, he's producing lots of great research. As we might recognize, a case study is N of 1. It's hard to have a control group, but it's nice to hear these stories and that's why I actually do How You Do BFR. As you listen to the story, it highlights a situation which may actually give someone out there an idea to put that into their own practice. And that's what I'm hoping to do with these type of articles and case reviews and interviewing people to find ways for practitioners and people out there who might say, I think this might work in my own situation. So I'll get straight into the case review here. In this study, they spoke about a 22-year-old male natural bodybuilder who was 175 centimeters tall and 70 kilos in body weight and was, training for, uh, and was training for a regional USA competition. Two weeks before the competition, he developed pain on the lateral aspect of the right knee while squatting. The patient reported he felt something snap and pop in his knee and tried to continue his workout. However, the pain became too great to continue with higher load training. This athlete actually used previous knowledge from a popular press article written on practical BFR training and the patient finished his leg workout using low loads in combination with BFR using elastic knee wraps. As we all know, a lot of studies use set with cuffs, but there's some studies out there that actually highlight the use of elastic knee wraps being able to create occlusion because that's what we're trying to do. One day after this incident, the patient scheduled an appointment with an orthopedic surgeon. In addition, the patient contacted the research group for greater insight into practical BFR training, and this is how this case study came about. The patient thought he had torn his meniscus and sought a low-low alternative that would help him maintain his skeletal muscle mass for his upcoming competition. Therefore, the patient was advised that he should perform low-load BFR resistance training if he was able to do it pain-free. The patient was instructed to make the traditional full set 75 rep protocol where your first set is 30 reps followed by 3 sets of 15. Three days after the initial injury, he went in for his scheduled appointment with a physician. On examination, his right knee showed an effusion. There was no warmth and the knee was capable of being fully extended. However, he was only capable of flexing his right knee to 120 degrees versus 140 on the left. There was no tenderness on palpation on the lateral or the medial joint lines. Additionally, there was no tenderness on the patellofemoral compression or pain with grinding on the medial or lateral compartments. There was slight pain laterally with varus stress as well as with hyperextension stress. The patient then got an MRI on his right knee and the results indicated a significant osteochondral defect involving the inner weight-bearing portion of the medial femoral condyle of his right knee. The osteochondral fracture was loose and was displaced inward by four millimeters and was overlaying the medial tibial spine. Based on the MRI results, it was recommended surgical intervention to repair the defect as soon as possible. The patient, however, wanted to compete in the bodybuilding competition that was to occur in 10 days, so surgery was postponed. As a result of this, surgery was to be scheduled following the bodybuilding competition. Since he was pain-free while training with low-load BFR exercise, the patient continued to use this training modality up until his scheduled preoperative evaluation. Ten days after the decision to postpone surgery, the patient competed in both the open lightweight and junior divisions and placed the top five in both divisions. This was the first of three competitions that he originally had planned before his knee injury. Two days after this competition, the patient returned for his preoperative evaluation. Upon examination, it became clear that he was healing and had essentially no symptoms. He had previously been shown to have an osteochondral fracture. However, the examination on this day showed no effusion or tenderness. He also presented with normal knee range of movement and ambulated with no limp. A repeat MRI revealed that only a small bone density could be seen, which measured only 2 mm at most on the view compared to the initial 4 mm. Following the examination, it was the physician's impression that the osteochondral fracture had been pushed back into its anatomical place and had begun healing. They recommended that the patient continue with the low load BFR training until he was six weeks post the original injury and then to gradually increase his activity and the loading according to what he would normally do in the gym. Therefore, this case study suggests that practical BFR using knee wraps may serve as an effective stimulus during rehab from a knee injury. Anecdotally, the patient verbalized that he was able to maintain skeletal muscle mass with low load BFR training using knee wraps. As with BFR and in muscle hypertrophy, the primary mechanism behind the benefits of skeletal muscle with BFR is thought to occur through a fluid shift-induced cellular swelling. And with respect to the bone formation, the fluid shifts and increase osseous pressure from vascular occlusion are also thought to be beneficial for bone formation. Previous research using low load BFR exercise have found favorable changes in bone metabolic markers, which may provide a possible explanation for For the initiation of the healing response observed in the two weeks of low-load BFR training with knee wraps." Again, the article went on to say that this hypothesis is speculative and to be cautious around using this as a potential mechanism to explain what happened. However, when you start to look at the body of evidence that's out there and the people that are using these type of training intervention, there's something in there for the users out there. As we all know, there's responders and non-responders. And that's okay because if you're able to use this and use it safely under the guidance of people out there, I think it's worthwhile investigating to see if it'll actually work. Although this was a short review, I thought it was a really great follow-up to the one that I did two podcasts ago to actually show a real-life case study of someone that's out there using it in a sport where the role of muscle size is of major importance. And on that note, we're going to go on to how you do BFR. So, uh, on how you do BFR, I've got Dr. Christopher Bradner, a strength and conditioning coach with Aspire Academy. Uh, Welcome aboard. Thanks, Chris. I'm really honored here to have Chris because he's actually done his PhD in the area of blood flow restriction. He's a strength and conditioning coach. But more so back to his PhD, I guess when he came on board around that 2011, I know Percy as myself, when I actually brought out my first sports rehab tourniquet, I just got back from the UK. I struggled to actually get a really good product out there. And um, those who remember my very first model, it was a quite a big bulky type setup. And now I've got multiple sizes quite similar so it's been an evolution so when you think about back in 2011 when Chris first did his PhD, all his studies in this area. To this point, now he's actually now been able to put all the data together. It takes a long time to actually write a paper and finally get it out to publication, and I can attest to that—that's for sure. And I'm just really interested in getting his thoughts on how the evolution of BFR—it's been around since the 1960s, more so in Katsu out of Japan. So it's actually been around for a while. It's really well researched. However, I think the world of social media helps increase popularity and in certain products and certain tools in our training toolbox so yeah really I just want to hand it over to, to Chris in just a little different format with this type of segment about how he's seen BFR change and I guess his thoughts on where it's
1: come from and perhaps where it's going to go to. Okay yeah cool so I mean I, I started as you said in 2011 I was uh, studying at Deakin University I was offered a, a PhD scholarship and didn't quite know what they were going to be in but I, I knew it wanted I wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach and work in that field and my supervisor at the time suggested, you know, let's let's try this vascular occlusion stuff. And uh, I read a paper and it was a paper published in, in 2000 by Takarada. It was a Japanese study, but it was quite a good study. They compared BFR with lifting heavy and lifting light in older woman population, I think it was, looking at single arm curl training. And basically they showed that you can lift light loads with BFR and you can get just as strong and, and just as big as lifting heavy. And that was that was kind of the start. I wasn't, to be honest, that interested in the topic, but I thought, hey, what else have I got at this stage and let's see where this goes. So there wasn't much out there in terms of the published literature and 1998 was the, the first English BFR paper. There was a, a journal created at the International Journal of, of Katsu Training and Katsu Training is the, the Japanese version of BFR training. So it, it was information was slowly out there, but maybe it was more more in Japan and, and in non-English language. Even Jeremy Laneki, who is the most prolific BFR researcher out there, he had only published just quite a few papers, uh, maybe a review paper, maybe a couple of acute studies. And, and so there really wasn't that much out there. So when I first started, a bunch of cowboys applying tourniquets to limbs and restricting blood flow and not really knowing what we were doing. So heaps has evolved. In that time, you know that I started in 2011, and we're now in uh, 2019 now. So it's almost 10 years of data that's out there, and you know Jeremy has got close to 100 publications in the BFR area, let alone what everyone else has contributed. So there's a, a lot more, lot more that we know. So when when I first started my um, PhD, you know, you've got to review the area. It was nice because my lit review was quite small because there wasn't that much out there. I looked at neuromuscular responses, cardiovascular responses, obviously training adaptation to BFR. But still, you know, we weren't sure how we were going to do that at, uh, at Deakin. We tried to get our hands on the, the Katsu training devices. At the time, you could only get them, I think, from Japan. The American College of Sports Medicine was offering not scholarships, but, but the use of, of Katsu devices if you were successful in obtaining a grant from them. So we applied for that, didn't get it. Okay, so back to the drawing board and uh, I must have must have stumbled across something in a, in a journal somewhere and look and found this zimmer product which is a surgical based product uh, when when surgeries occur and uh, they need to restrict blood flow to to the, whatever surgical procedure it's happening you know people are using these automatic cuff inflation systems so they're not cheap because they're a grade hospital grade and you know i think it was about 14,000 Australian dollars to get our hands on one of those which included two upper body and two lower body cuffs so we we really were, were starting from there and you know luckily for us this machine also allowed us to monitor the restriction pressure during exercise which was a cool feature we weren't sure uh, you know, like a standard blood pressure cuff wasn't able to do that, for example, and we weren't sure what the katsu devices could or couldn't do. And uh, it also allowed us to measure the maximal arterial occlusion pressure as well. So, from that, you know, we were able to to then uh, use a percentage of that for training. And just on that, I guess, you know, when when we first started, when you look at these Japanese studies and in those are the first initial publications. You know, people were, were pumping their cuffs up to 300 millimeters of mercury and, and higher and, you know, such high pressures. But then again, you know, some people were using 50 millimeters of mercury. So, you know, such a disparity between training studies and, and now we know that muscle girth or muscle size and cuff widths, you know, have a huge influence on uh, what type of pressures they'll be using. You know, one of the first things I think we did and we've published this was use a percentage of uh, resting blood pressure which is also shown to, to have an effect on on the underlying restriction of the, the vascular system. So really, everyone's doing all these different things back in the day, but now I feel that everyone's gone on to this using a percentage of the maximal arterial occlusion pressure, and, and that seems to be quite a safe and effective means to, to actually restrict the blood flow for exercise.
0: Yeah, and when I think about that, you know, I kind of think there's Practical BFR, you know, using an RP of seven out of 10, that's been shown to be effective in literature. To the high end, where you'll actually use something like a Zimmer or a Katsu, where you'll actually be holding the set pressure throughout the whole exercise regime. And I guess somewhere in the middle, with, you know, giving my own product a plug, where you can actually calculate a theoretical arterial occlusion or percentage of arterial occlusion, pump it up. And where my mind then goes to, as you said, from pressures as low as 50 up to 220 have been shown to be effective and set mine at 50% of arterial occlusion based upon that equation by Jeremy using limb circumference and blood pressures. And I actually find that a really nice, effective equation to use. It adds a little bit more science to my methodology. I guess when I first started, I used just absolute arbitrary pressures, lower body 140 to 160. and, And I guess that's helped me adjust mine. And I know then when I go from a seated to a standing position, yes, I know the pressures will change. However, in my mind, I know I'm not going to maximal pressure because I cut mine off at 200 mils of mercury for lower body. And I know it's going to fluctuate. And I know you've got to adjust it in between. Whoever finds it's that happy medium between just wrapping something on or strapping something on using an RPE or
1: spending a couple of thousand dollars. I agree. And I think Jeremy was one of the first one as well, probably to put out this practical BFR training with, with tourniquets or, or with wraps, knee wraps. And uh, I just don't think we know what's going on under in the underlying tissue. So I just, it's probably safe, but this RPE of seven out of 10, you know, that's also a bit arbitrary or very arbitrary. So would we use it? I wouldn't, but maybe for large training groups, maybe that's all you've got. But something like, yeah, the sports rehab tourniquet is, you know, you can set a pressure And yes, that that will fluctuate with change of uh, range of motion through your exercise. But I think as you said, you know, pressures of 50 up to 220 or pressures of 40% of your maximal versus 90% of your maximal all typically show increases in strength and muscle mass in a similar manner. So it seems to be like a large range of of percentage of of the restriction pressure that you can use and maybe lower pressures are just as effective as high pressure. So is there any real need to really pump it up? Maybe some people really like that big pumped up feeling as well. Possibly safe if you've got none, no underlying conditions, but you know, maybe moderate pressures are, are okay too. So just keep cracking on with uh, moderate restriction pressures and you know it's going to be safe and you know you're going to get your, your muscle tissue response as well.
0: Definitely. And it was saying in one of our earlier conversations that you've been revisiting BFR, especially with writing up your own paper. How do you see the whole world
1: of BFR changing in respect to how it's been applied and used? I was been writing this paper and, you know, I had nine months to do it and I didn't do it in nine months and I was really pushing the limits. But as I'm writing it, it really got me back into the swing of of BFR training. I'm like, great, you know, I met you at the 2012 ASCA conference in Melbourne, I think it was, at the MCG. And I I bought one of your cuffs from you then. So that's sort of where our journey sort of starts. I said, well, well, I've got this cuff from 2012. I need the latest stuff. So I got onto you again and I ordered some cuffs online and I'm in Australia right now on holiday and your cuffs arrived for my birthday, which is day before Christmas. So grabbed them out and had a little bit of a play. So thanks for that. And yeah, so where do I see it changing now? I think definitely for rehab populations, you know, people who are either injured or have had surgery. I just think, you know, you can get back once it's cleared uh, from the surgeon, for example, your your medical doctor. If you're cleared for training and you can't lift heavy loads, the next best thing is probably to do either, you know, light loads to muscle failure, or if you use BFR, you're going to get to that failure a lot earlier, and maybe it's more an effective stimulus as well. Maybe this is some type of vascular adaptation that you're going to get with BFR training versus lifting light loads without BFR. So the first step, I think, for a lot of rehab could be with BFR. Before, you know, when you are ready to lift moderate to heavy loads, then you can go on and do that either with or without BFR. So in the rehab settings, I see it pretty big. But the other one is, you know, in Japan, it came about because of their aging population. So elderly populations, okay, they could probably lift heavy. Is it safe? I'm not sure. But maybe we can do this katsu training. With our older populations and increased strength, mass, functional capacities. And that's why I think it took off in Japan. And I think if you look at Australia's population, we're heading to that way where, in, you know, in the future, you will have a much older generation than we will than our, our younger cohort. So maybe training in the elderly or older adults is also going to see an explosion of this BFR training to help them increase mass functional capacity. We had a PhD student at Deakin who looked at that as well. You know, things like the sit-to-stand test and the uh, it's like a a walking-based test where you have to cover, I don't know, a couple hundred meters within within a time frame. You know, those things improve with BFR training, greater than obviously doing nothing, but also greater than just lifting light loads as well. So I think in elderly populations and injured populations, I I think that's where BFR is heading. And there are some other clinical pops that I know there there are the research studies happening now as well around the world.
0: Good point there with elderly populations. Research says lift heavy loads. I think, just from the more practical point of view of getting clients to want to train, if you say to them you have to lift heavy, I think some of them might actually struggle with that as a concept. However, if you can lighten the load a little bit, and a lot of people do say when they put cuffs on, doesn't matter what they use, which brand, but you know, that they'll report saying my joints feel supported, I can feel my legs activate. My muscles activate more than normal and they have that decrement in pain. And I think that actually just increases that buy-in from your athletes or your clients who actually would be able to then say, well, you know what, I'm, I want to do this session again because I'm not struggling to lift 80%. One, you know, you say to a 70-year-old person or 65, you know, you're going to lift 80% of 1RM to, to fatigue and you're going, really? Like, you know, I just think you get better buy-in.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And that analgesic effect. I know. Um, so I work in uh, Aspire Academy, but next door to us is the Aspitar Sports Medicine Hospital. And there was a physiotherapist over there who, who was published. I'm not sure if it was a, a research paper, but definitely a poster. And they showed that you know people with anterior knee pain and other knee type problems, they they would do a session of BFR, even with like very very low loads or against no resistance at all, and show that you know immediately pain reduced. But not only that, they were then able to go and lift their heavy weights as well. Now, that's with an athletic-based cohort. I don't think that's been shown in an older population. Imagine that, you know, little, little grandma down the road can hardly shuffle her feet along the road because of all, all the pain that she's in. Maybe, and who knows, because it hasn't been, been looked at yet, maybe BFR produces this, this type of effect, as you said, in, in older populations too. And then they can go on and, and, and their activities of daily living improve as well. So, I mean, that, that would be great.
0: Yeah, it's quite a practical way of doing things. Yeah, you know, I've got lots of other stories. Really one that sticks out for me is that I had another s coach who ended up getting both knees replaced and would say, it was kind of like walking with, you know, it looked quite painful, almost like glass in the joints, and squatting with them on would give him 24 hours of relief. You know, he's now got two new knees, so he's had knee replacements. <laughs> However, yeah. saying that, you know, when you hear the power of those stories, it, it draws interest to this as, as a potential.
1: And you think in team sports when you've got a lot of guys who are playing week in, week out or multiple games per week or contact sports or whatever, okay, there's an issue with cuffs because you might only have one set, afford one set. That's why people do practical stuff. But even if you only have one set of cuffs, really, you only have to do less than five minutes of exercise with, with these cuffs on. To get these types of effects and probably muscular adaptations too. So, why wouldn't you just pump a whole bunch of players who are sore through BFR training sessions through a week? It seems to be uh, pretty effective for most.
0: Yeah. Another question I'd like to ask you is around reps and set schemes. I think one thing that's quite popular is the 75 rep protocol 30 reps, three, then followed by three sets of 15 my take on that is that traditionally in academia you would do one or two lifts only so you have to create this high level of metabolic stress however i've had reasonably good success using just typical high rep protocols like three or four sets of 12 or 15.
1: is there anything you'd like to add to that or your thoughts in that space I think I'd, put, I'd stick to the high reps as well, uh, whether or not you do a fatiguing first set or or all sets to muscle failure, which have, again, shown to be effective. I'm not sure. And maybe it depends on how many exercises are included in your training session as well. And there is a training study that looked at you know your 75-rep protocol. So one group did that, and then another group did 150 reps. So they, they repeated repeated that training volume twice, so double the amount of training volume, but same gains in strength and muscle size. So doing more isn't any better. And there are some studies out there that do do three sets of 15 and show uh, increased strength and size. So yeah, I I would stick to higher reps. But in terms of loading as well, there's some stuff now that's looking at 15% of of 1RM. Maybe that's too low. I certainly don't think you're going to get a a strength response there. Majority is twenty to thirty percent of one RM, and sometimes up to to 50 percent. And you know there are heavy load training studies as well. So I think if you're you're covering a continuum of percentages of one RM with with your training, I think you probably got all systems covered. So yeah, higher reps, thirty to forty percent of a load, perhaps if you still want that strength adaptation to occur as well. Yeah, as you know, it's it's varied, and there's probably heaps of protocols that we could look at, and that's. You know probably one thing that the the research isn't really looking at yet different training adaptations to to different types of uh, loading schemes I don't think
0: and potentially I sometimes think this is and you correct me you have your own opinion here that we all look to what does research say and we've got to follow what research says however you know I've been doing this segment for a little while now and there are people doing some real different stuff out there incorporating bFR that goes against what normal protocols would be, and I think we've got to use academia as a starting point to say this is roughly what we've got to be doing along these guidelines however we need to push the boundaries especially if we have athletic populations where they need up sometimes higher load or higher intensity to actually get that response
1: do you have any thoughts in, in that one I think uh, just to follow up on what I said before as well is that the the research would say that if you're going to lift very low loads, your pressures should be higher. And if you're going to lift higher loads, your pressures can be, can be lower as well. So who's leading the race in terms of, of what we should be doing? Is it the research side of things or is it the coaches out there that, who, are, who are performing BFR exercise as well? I'm not sure which way that conversation leads. Certainly the researchers I think could, could focus a lot on uh, clinical populations and probably the safety effects which would help coaches prescribe training in a safe manner there's a whole scope. I mean, if I was to go back into academia now, I'd love to probably delve into more of this BFR stuff and look at a lot more coaching type stuff, set rep, loading, pressures, that kind of thing.
0: That covers a wide spectrum of different areas. So thanks for your thoughts on that, Chris. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problems, mate. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. Look forward to uh, your paper being accepted and uh, more work coming out in the future. All the best.
1: Thanks, Chris. And that's all
0: today for this episode of BFR Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to take part in the podcast, please contact me through my website or on social media channels at Chris Gavillio. For more information and to order a set of your own BFR cuffs, please visit my website at sportsrehab.com.au. Thanks for listening and keep the pump.